we continue to go through Colossians. This morning we're, we are in chapter 2, verse 8. I don't think that that's a surprise to anyone. However, I have some news for you. Next week I'm intending, this is always a plan of mine. I don't know whether we're too high or not. Always a plan of mine. Intending to do verses 9 to 12 next week. And then the week after that, 13 to 15. So the reason we're taking so long in these preparatory verses is that Paul, remember, is building a foundation. And we want to take our time in making sure that we understand what this foundation is and that this foundation becomes foundational in us, doctrinally foundational in us. And as I wait for a few more folks to come into the class, let me say this as a preparatory thing, and this won't count for the class, so we'll still do the whole thing today. Yet I have said, and it's not because I have said it, but it's true, but I've just said this, that what we're studying in this particular letter, not more than other letters, but it's kind of accentuated in this letter because of the issues. What's coming into the church in Colossae, and it comes into the church in any church, all the churches, all the time. Paul is dealing with human wisdom, human understanding, man-centered thoughts and opinions and directions and teachings. And this morning we'll understand a little more specifically what that is. And so the issues of the world come up against the people of God. Relational issues, financial issues, health issues, whatever the issues are. We live in a collapsed world, a world dominated by sin, Satan being the God of this world. And so there is no hope in this world that things are going to get better, and therefore the Lord of glory must return to create a new heaven and a new earth. We know this. And as an example, one of the covenant group leaders called me the other day, and he's having a meeting with a particular person about a particular issue. And he's very concerned, in a good way, how to handle it. And that's fine. We always want, if you're not sure how to handle something, to be asked. And if we know, we will share that. If we don't know, we'll pray about it, look it up, and do whatever we can to, to work together as we walk together as a people to hear the Word of God. And, and I think it dawned on him when I shared with him, well, you know, this is the very thing that we've been dealing with in the Colossians class to say what? If you had been in here with us, a lot of what you're asking would have been answered. Now you say, oh, well, that's not fair. No, it is fair. God provides a means among us through the knowledge and the study of the Word of God <clears throat> on a personal basis, in a corporate basis such as this, in our gathering on Sunday morning and worship to equip us for personal maturity and being guarded against the attacks of the enemy overcoming us, and to walk with one another. So let me first thank you for being in here. And secondly, may I encourage you, ask others to come in here. 
again, this has nothing to do with the fact that I teach this class. When Bill was teaching it, I did my utmost to encourage others. When Evan has taught it, when others have taught it, this is what we do because of the significance of what the Word of God is to us. That's a free advertisement. You don't have to pay for that. Uh, so let's start the class. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Father, you have not only given us your word for our salvation, but for our sanctification, for our protection against the contrary word of the world of the enemy, the contrary word of humanity. Father, thank you for giving us, filling us with your word of truth. Father, for we know that it is as we abide in the truth and the word of Jesus abides in us, Jesus said, then you are my disciples and then you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Father, make it so in us in an increasing way in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the place where Paul begins to actually put his finger on the problem. Remember, he has said, don't allow anyone to take you captive through plausible arguments. And we discussed that a little bit, captive. The people of God or the people who have been freed from the tyranny and the control of Satan, of sin, Satan's weapon of death has been taken away from him. Remember Hebrews 2.14. And we are no longer under the tyranny of that death sentence. We have been what? Set free in Christ. We are God's free people. But that positional freedom can begin to become attacked in our walk of freedom. And it is our walk of freedom, our practice of living the life of Christ, living this freedom that comes under attack when we begin to swallow the poison of plausible arguments. And so this morning, Paul, we talk about, we look at exactly what are these plausible arguments? What is this, this that Paul has been writing this polemic? You know what a polemic is? This attack against these teachers. So in the second half of verse 8, chapter 2, he says this, they a philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So let's look at what Paul calls these plausible arguments. First of all, philosophy. Now, what does philosophy mean? We know that phileo means what? Love. It has to do with brotherly love, you know, that whole issue of loving, emotional loving, and so on. And Sophia, what is Sophia? It's wisdom. And so it is the love of wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom, the study of wisdom. It is the love and use of human wisdom. And in a general sense, this is good because human wisdom, remember the Greek philosophers and the philosophers of all countries and all people are philosophers. We're all trying to figure out how to navigate the stormy weather of this world. 
And so philosophy is that study which seeks through human understanding to make sense of what seems to be a senseless world. Why do we die? Why do things happen? Why are relationships the way they are? What can we do to ameliorate the difficulties? What can we do to bring people together? How can we live in this senseless, broken, seemingly crazy world? How can we live in this world in a way that we can get through it successfully? And so philosophy tends to deal and desires to deal with that. Now, let's make sure that Paul is not attacking philosophy in general, you know, the area of philosophy, but he is attacking the use of man-centered philosophy as a way to further the work of Christ in the church. He is attacking the taking of human wisdom and philosophy from the world system where it belongs and where it needs to stay and bringing that system of human wisdom and understanding into the church so that the church now begins to receive and walk according to the wisdom of the world in order to make sense of how the world is and help the church to walk in a better way and deal with the issues that are a part of our lives. And when we do that, we begin to supplant the Word of God with wisdom, with human wisdom. Anytime we begin to add anything of the world's way, world's wisdom, world's philosophy, world's thought, anytime we begin to add anything of that to Christ, to the Word of God, we immediately begin to supplant the Word of God. We cannot add something not of the Word to the Word and the Word remain for us what it needs to remain, sufficient and central and supreme. And so there's the danger. We begin to see that the enemy is using philosophy to be planting into the soil of the thoughts and minds and activity of the church weeds. So as they begin to come up, they can begin to disrupt the harmony in the garden of God. Now, what is this philosophy? Paul says, first, it's empty. It's empty. You may have in your Bible vain. Now, vain doesn't mean the things that are in your, your, your arm. That's a little different word. It's empty. It has no ability to achieve what it supposedly is to achieve. It is not empty in any sense of ability because philosophy has a huge ability to disrupt and to poison and to supplant. But when it comes to the issue of living godly, of hearing God's Word and knowing God's Word and pleasing God and walking in a manner that is pleasing to God, remember in 110 of Colossians, when it comes to the issue of living a godly life, of being able to promote the worship of Christ 
in that context, philosophy is empty. It has no ability. Human wisdom has no ability in this context. Although the wisdom had the appearance, this wisdom has the appearance of godly wisdom. The appearance on the outside, it seems logical. It seems normal. It seems like this is the way we should do it. How many of us have come under that kind of a thing. Well, it seems the way it should be. It, it just seems the way everybody else is. This seems the normal, natural way. Well, we have to be careful. Anytime we think that way, that should be an alarm by the Holy Spirit in us to say, hold on, stop a moment. We better go to God and pray and seek the Word of God and seek the, uh, uh, what, what word I want, the help me on the word, of other people, the input of other folks in the church. We need to do that when we begin to think that this seems the right way. So although the wisdom, this wisdom had the appearance of godly wisdom, in reality, it was empty of godly wisdom. It was void. It doesn't have some godly wisdom in it. It has no godly wisdom. Because once we mix the wisdom that is not of God to the wisdom that is of God, it makes the whole thing void. You remember when Satan in the, in the uh, mountain that Jesus, in, in Matthew, and Mark, um, Matthew and Luke, Jesus was being tempted, and Satan quotes the word of God to you. Don't you know that if you jump off here, the angels are going to collect you and stop you from even dashing your foot against the stone? Don't you know that? He is quoting the word of God, but it is satanic wisdom. And even though it is the Word of God, what does Jesus do? He rejects it. He doesn't reject the content of the Word, but he rejects it as the intent of evil. So we have to make sure that although sometimes the content may be right, if the intent is wrong mixed with other things, we need to reject the whole thing. And so what does 2 Timothy 3, 5 say? Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul says, avoid such people. Avoid them. <clears throat> he says avoid them. Not only is it empty, but it's empty what? Deceit. Now here is the purpose of this philosophy, this human wisdom. It was not only empty, it was deceitful having the effect of undermining faith in the sufficiency and in the preeminence of Christ. Anytime we begin to receive and believe and walk in any other kind of wisdom, any other kind of thought, any other kind of action which is not specifically of God, it begins to undermine our faith in the sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ. Just the other day I was asked this. The issue here is so difficult. Should we pursue professional help? Now, what they're saying is this. They're not saying we need to go to a medical doctor because our arm is broken and you can't fix my arm. Well, we know that's all right. But should we go to, quote, trained secular counselors who use psychological methods, et cetera, for help? Now, there's a real deal here. We have to be careful. 
There is a place in the world where we can go to people to receive help for them to at least help in understanding what's going on, you know, and, and dealing with those kinds of issues. But when it comes to the solution of soul issues, you know what I mean by soul issues? The issues of the mind, the issues of the heart, the issues of our feelings, our emotions, our beliefs, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we relate to one another. We stand on this and affirm this, that only the Word of God is sufficient in these issues. And it was asked me by a believer the other day, because the issue was very difficult. Do we need to go somewhere else? Now, that is not a repudiation of me or of Keith Collins or any of us. It's a repudiation of the Word. They weren't saying, hey, Peter, you don't know enough. We need to go somewhere else. It's, is the Word of God sufficient? Do we have to go to the world because they seemingly are gaining greater information into the issues of the mind and the soul? The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. Do you believe that? The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is what? Sufficient. And if it isn't, it undoes all that Christ did at the cross. Because if it was sufficient to save me and to forgive me and to give me eternal life, then it is sufficient to keep me saved, to sanctify and mature me all the way to the end. Amen? The issue always in a believer is this. It is, am I going to obey the word when I hear the word given to me? The issue always in counseling and in dealing relationally with one another is this. My obedience. That's where the issue is. Rather than seeking another way or making it easier or not having to do that or not having to go over there or not having to face this, it is my obedience which is the issue among us. Do you see that in yourselves? Do you see it in the church? It's always the issue of my obedience. The Word of God is always sufficient. The insufficiency isn't in the Word. The sufficiency, insufficiency is in my believing and appropriating the Word of God. Can you say amen? That's where the insufficiency is. When you see it, quote, not working, when you see it, quote, not working, don't look at the Word and wonder why isn't the Word not working. Stephen, does the Word work? You're a man in whose life I have seen personally, visibly, one-on-one, -on -one, you restored and your family restored, and the great work of God happened. Isn't this true? Now, I'm pointing you out, but I know you don't mind that. Does the Word work? The Word works when you work the Word. Is that right? And when you refuse to work the Word, then it's not happening. Not because of the Word that lacks, but because of I who lack in taking up the Word and using it according to the Spirit of God. Amen? This is where the insufficiency is, friends. So if you're looking at your own life, you're looking at your relationships, you're looking wherever it is where things are going wrong, and all of us have a million things going wrong at one time. That's just the world. Don't question sufficiency of Christ. Question the 
insufficiency of my understanding, my knowledge, my wisdom, my taking up that which is sufficient. That's where the insufficient is, insufficiency is. Perry, am I right? Is this correct, Perry? You've seen it in your own life, Perry? Yes. Have I seen it in my life? Yes. Zaringer, have you seen it in your life? Julio, have you seen it in your life? Anybody in here, have you seen that the Word of God does not work when you obey it? Can anybody testify to that? How many of us can testify, though? When I work the Word, the Word works me and does it right. Amen? All of us can testify. Do you see? Now, so the world is coming in, and it's saying there's insufficiency, and we're believing this insufficiency is in the Word, Billy, but the Word is not insufficient. It's Something in and about me. The insufficiency, Claude, is in me. It's not in this risen, exalted, heavenly man. It's in me. Well, what is this word? He says it is philosophy, empty deceit, and it's according to human wisdom or tradition. The human, wow, I'm not moving as quickly as I thought I would. <clears throat> Sorry about that. The human tradition Paul is speaking about, here it is. Here is specifically what Paul is speaking about to these Jewish Gentile believers. The human tradition Paul is speaking about was the unbiblical understanding and the unbiblical application of the Torah to the daily Christian living. Got it? Now, all of you know what the Torah is. So I don't have to go into any explanation of what the Torah is. The Hebrew word Torah means law. The Hebrew word Torah means law. It is the law of God. These teachers were taking the law of God, the Torah, the Old Testament law, and they were either unbiblically, and I will give them grace on this, they were unbiblically understanding it. And I do believe that's what was wrong. They were zealous in their application of what they understood to be correct. They were zealous. They thought they understood it. They were sincerely zealous. And they wanted the church to Obey what they sincerely and zealously understood of the Torah that in their mind still was applicable to the church but was no longer applicable to the church. But they thought it was. And there are people still today. You know, I, I must say this. And, and, and if this is you, then please be adjusted. I can't tell you how many believers are in the office and they are upset and angry because some of their Catholic family hound them. You need to come back. You're in danger. You need to stop going to that church. And they're upset about that. And I said, why should you be upset? These people genuinely think that you're going to hell. They genuinely think you're going to hell. So let's stop berating them, and let's start 
relating to them differently. They genuinely believe that you're going to hell. And if we had family members that we generally believe going to hell, do any of us try to speak into that? Do any of us do that? Anybody here? Anybody here? Anybody? Anybody raise your hand that you genuinely, yes, we do the same thing to them. These teachers were teaching something they genuinely believed the church needed to subscribe to in order to continue the walk of Christ. The Torah was given, you remember, to Israel by God for their blessing and was divided into three basic areas. You know, I think it would be wise one day maybe to do a, a more expanded teaching on the Torah. It had three areas, basically, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the, and the memorial law, the more, help me, moral law. <laughs> However, the misuse of the Torah generally was their insistence that certain regulations of the ceremonial law still applied to Christian living. It was basically the issue of the ceremonial law that was being misapplied here. It was not the misapplication of the Ten Commandments. Since you are a Christian, you are no longer under obligation to thou shalt not kill, you shall not steal. You're no longer under that obligation because that law has been done away with, Joe. We're free of the law of God in the Ten Commandments. Well, that's hooey. That's heresy. That's demonic. It's demonic. So what law have we been freed from? By teaching this, they were teaching, they were counseling their wisdom rather than God's wisdom. They were misapplying God's purpose for Israel and for the church in the ceremonial law. They were misapplying it. God's purpose for Israel, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, in which the Torah basically is contained. Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, what is it? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Hopefully, we as a church at least know the first five books. That's where the law of God is contained. Most specifically in Exodus and Leviticus, but in the whole, it was understood as the whole context there. And so, this law was given to deal with a nation's sin. As the ceremonial law was given, the priesthood was given, and the sacrificial system was in that ceremonial law, which included the keeping of the Levitical festivals. You remember the seven festivals, the dietary regulations, and the Sabbaths. So that's what that law was for. The ceremonial law was for the cleansing and the forgiving and the maintenance of God's people in God's way as they sought to, by faith, obey the moral law, and when they failed, it was the ceremonial law, the law of sacrifices and priests and bloodshedding. It was that law that was cleansing them and maintaining them in a relationship before God. That law was in force during those days until he who fulfills that part of the law and the rest of it, of course, is now come and we have been now freed from that system of forgiveness and maintenance before God because we have a high priest in the heavens. Listen to Hebrews 10. Then Christ added, 
Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the law, the covenant, in order to establish the second. Remember the old covenant and the new covenant. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. They just continue to remove the guilt and the wrath of God at that moment for another year, piling it up and piling it up and piling it up until the high priest comes himself to take all that accumulated sin and wrath unto himself. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for a to- that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his, pe- uh, his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Christ died for our sin and has forgiven every sin whatsoever and forever in his death and has given us eternal life in his resurrection. No other wisdom can compete with this. And when it does, it begins to undercut the very sacrifice and supremacy of Christ himself. When Jesus, our high priest, died, And when he rose, he fulfilled all the regulations of the ceremonial law. We know he did the moral law, too, but I'm emphasizing this particular aspect. So don't come up to me and say, what about the moral law? Obviously, he kept the moral law without sin, remember? No sin in him. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. However, these teachers were insisting that some of the regulations were still in force for the church. That which was given to Israel for the sake of maintaining them as God's covenant people has been now fulfilled in him who has in himself and by himself completed all the requirements of the old covenant and in his death has put away all that was required of the old covenant, having fulfilled it perfectly, and in his, regula- uh, in his resurrections brings forth the living new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant, Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Drink this Remember, drink this in memory of me. See, this is what so inflamed Jesus. This is what got Jesus so upset about the teachings of the Pharisees who were misapplying and reprioritizing God's words as their own. They were misapplying and therefore reprioritizing God's word. Remember Jesus' reaction to this, Mark 7, 19. 
He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Isn't it interesting? Adding to it some other regulations and some other things that you need to do in order to not only be kept saved, but to be mature, these regulations that you need to do. We're not talking about, again, maintaining, being maintained by faith and obedience in the moral word of God. We're talking about these other issues. He says, when you do that, when you add all this stuff to my, uh, to yourself, bring it unto yourself. You're rejecting the word of God. He says, you're rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So in our vocabulary today, they were making non-gospel issues seem to be gospel issues. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Gene and I made a decision We've been married, what, this April, 47 years, so this is 45 years ago or so. Not to drink any alcohol whatsoever anymore. No more. Finish. Finish with it completely, absolutely forever. Now, personally, I think Gene and I are doing fine without it. I think we are enjoying life, and I think we are enjoying God's blessing, and I don't think we've missed out on anything. But I don't want to get too extreme on this. I have shared this with people. Why'd you do that? Because we felt God gave us. Did you hear? What what word did I just say? God what? Gave who? Us, Gene and me. A revelation, don't do it for the sake of causing stumbling in the church. Okay. And we used to enjoy some nice drinks, some nice wine. I like wild turkey bourbon. I didn't stop it because I didn't like alcohol. Quite to the contrary. Physically, I miss my nice drinks. We stopped it because we felt God gave it to us. But having said that, it is a non-gospel issue. It is a man wisdom. It is a misapplication of the Word of God. If I say to the church, therefore, everyone needs to stop drinking in order to please God. Do we get that? Do we, do we have that this morning? Do we get what I just said? Gene and I have made this decisions. Others have. But is that to say, therefore, that, oh, my word, that means that I can't please God if I have a glass of wine? It's not a matter in our minds of rules and regulations. For us, it is really a matter of wisdom and caring for the body. But if you haven't seen that, if that isn't yours, if God hasn't given that to you, then God bless you. You live according to how God has led you without any judgmentalism or condemnation on your part. Give us the freedom of exercising what we believe is our freedom in Christ to walk this way in wisdom, and you have the freedom to exercise your freedom in Christ to walk your way in wisdom. Are we okay on that? So I cannot make it as a regulation as far as our our walk in Christ is concerned, this as a regulation. If I could, I would regulate everybody must be in the school of the Word in order to be maintained in Christ. I absolutely would. I'd do it in a hair. I'd do it in a hair. Why don't I? Because it brings in man-centered, man-thought, man-desired wisdom. Do, Do we understand what was happening here? You see, they were making what non-gospel issues seem to be a gospel issue. Drinking or not drinking, I'm not talking about drunkenness. 
is not a gospel issue. It is a wisdom issue in walking out the path that God has given you personally. And I do believe that both paths can be walked out and are being walked out sufficiently in the church. Although I'm still strong on this, I would like to see the entire church throw away every single drop of alcohol and begin to live in a way before the world that the world sees that we are a people that don't need the stuff. We need, we have Christ and I don't need anything else. According to the elemental, elemental principles, spirits of the world, where does all this stuff come from? Listen to this word, Mark 8, 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, all of a sudden, Jesus is in trouble. Okay. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God does not want you to suffer. God does not want you to be deprived. God wants you to have success. God wants you to have complete health. God wants you to have uh, uh, no relational difficulty. God wants, God wants, God wants. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. For you speak the things that are pertaining to human tradition, to man, and not the things of God. Right? Remember that? How many times do we, when we see Jesus attacked, when we see things happening in our lives or the lives of other believers, all of a sudden we come up with a fast theology. God wouldn't want that, Errol. God wouldn't want that, Butch. Gail, God doesn't want this. Well, it may be that God doesn't want it, but we can't make these general assessments unless they are specifically in the Word of God. Here is what God doesn't want. Let me tell you what God doesn't want without any equivocation. Lester, God doesn't want you to sin anymore. And that's the only thing I can say that God doesn't want you to do. So when people come into my office, we don't command anything. There's only one command I'll ever give to a believer. Stop sinning. No other commands do we give. We give leadership and recommendations and, and suggestions and all of that. But we give one command, stop sinning. Jesus is in trouble. Peter, bless his heart, doesn't want Jesus to die. Bless our hearts. We don't want one another to suffer and to go into these things. And, and you mean this is gonna, you're going to have to live this way for the rest of your life? Well, God certainly doesn't want that. And we all of a sudden come up and manufacture all this stuff out of our own human wisdom and desire to help people. And our desire and our leadership needs to be more for the glory and the will of God. And if we do that, the real help that these folks need and I need will be given to them. The help that brings forth the glory of God in us. You see, Peter was adding his wisdom to God's wisdom, assuming that Jesus' arrest was not a good thing. Now, let's think carefully about this when we're talking to other people and talking to our spouses and hearing from others. Is what we're listening to human tradition, human wisdom? Is it according to the elemental principles of the world? Is there something behind this? Is there an enemy behind this saying to us, hath God said, don't you believe that it would be God's will for you to? Don't you think that God doesn't want you to? There's the sinister, slick 
conversation of a slithering serpent. Elemental principles of this world. What seemed to be human wisdom was really the scheme of Satan to undermine Jesus' will. You see, Paul describes human tradition in Romans 1, verse 21. Listen to what he says of this. For although they knew God, he's talking about those who are not of the people of God. They did not honor him as God or giving, gave thanks to him, but they became futile, empty deceit. Same thing, futile, empty deceit. In their thinking, you see, in their wisdom, in their traditions, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, well, what's the bottom line problem with human tradition, empty deceit, the elemental principles of this world? What is the bottom line problem here? Look at the last phrase here. Are we seeing it in our Bible? What is the last phrase? It's what? It's not according to Christ. That's the bottom line. Is what I am thinking, is what I am proposing, is what I am hearing, is what we are conjuring in our own minds, is it according to Christ? Now, how do you know whether it's according to Christ? Ken, how do you know? The Word of God. That's why I keep saying it, and I'll say it until the last breath in my body. Know the Word. Study the Word. Get into your Word. If you're not into your Word regularly and sufficiently, you are in danger of swallowing the poison of spiritual deceit and empty wisdom. And when you swallow it, you will begin to live it and you will begin to share it. Know the word. It's not according to Christ. Here's your problem. What was the main problem? They were not according to Christ. Paul has been laboring to affirm that all of God's wisdom is in Christ. Remember in chapter, uh, verse 3 of this chapter so that the church will be protected from becoming captive by human tradition. He keeps saying over and over and over again, and next week we're going to see him wind in this same thread. He has one thread, the sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ, his wisdom and not man's, and he goes back and forth and all around. And by the time we finish this letter, he said this over and over and over again in all kinds of contexts. Paul is repetitious. Why? Because we forget so easily and we need to be regularly reminded Christ is sufficient. This is Paul's burden in Galatians 3.25. Listen to him. But now that faith, remember in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, now that faith has come, now that you've been born again, we are no longer under a guardian, the old law of civil regulations and ceremony activities. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We're not even under the moral law as a burden to keep it in order to be maintained in Christ. We are under now 
Christ's obedience and living in the completed obedience of Christ and are called now to obey the law, not as a means of being maintained in Christ and keeping our salvation, but as a cooperative work with the Spirit in His work of building us up in Christ and pleasing God. So-called human philosophy is a product of the mind of man and not of Christ. It would be wise if you were to read 1 Corinthians 1, 17 all the way to 2, 16, and Paul labors to deal with this issue of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. You see, this wisdom does not conform to the Word of God in its content nor in its intent. It invalidates the Word, and our protection is knowing and understanding and obeying the Word of God by the Spirit. So, why is this a need today? Because I believe that all of us are so easily overcome by the things that we see in our life and the issues in our families and the issues in the church and the needs of other people and our own needs. And in an effort to deal with these needs and get them ameliorated, get them lifted, get them solved, we run too quickly to other kinds of wisdom and other kinds of ways where we need to go to God and sit down with the Lord and ask Him by the Spirit, show me what needs to be done. Reveal to me your word. Teach me and instruct me. And then we begin to move according to what the Word of God has been spoken to us by His Spirit. And we begin to share that Word. I think often we need to just very much slow down when in our pursuit of helping others. Remember Jesus in John 11 did not jump up, put out the fire, and run over to Bethany to put his hands on Lazarus. He waited. Why? Because he was showing something was greater than man's need, and that was the accomplishment of the glory of God in pre-casting or prefiguring or foreshadowing the great work of God in the resurrection. We need sometimes and maybe most of the time to sit still before God in Christ by the Spirit with His Word and listen to God so that when we get up, we're not too late, and even if, quote, we are too late. God will redeem the time and go into the situation fully armed with the Word of God, the wisdom of God. Amen? That's what we need. Now, we're going to pray for three ladies. Well, two, one isn't here. We're going to pray for Karen Boyd, who is going to have a biopsy this week to determine something about uh, something's growing in her body, and we need to pray for her. So, Karen, come on down. And we're going to pray for Brenda Tullis. You come on down too, Brenda. And we're going to pray for these two ladies. If you need to go, it's fine. If you go, that's fine. I'm just going to pray for them. Bill, would you come on up too, brother, please? And, and y'all want to pray with us, fine. If you need to go, please don't feel, oh, I better not go. Be dismissed. We're going to pray for these, three, these two ladies. And by extension, we're going to be, oh, there's Betty. I'm sorry. We're going to pray for Betty. See, Betty was making so much noise over there, I didn't see her. 